Close. Well, good morning, church. Uh, you're looking well, well fed, well padded, well attended. Uh, welcome back. And I hope the week had some moments of uh, cheer, exhilaration, that kind of joyful reflection, and a little bit of all the space that's in between. It's not over yet, of course. Uh, we work too hard to prepare for it. And um, I think it's important just to be able to linger for a few weeks within the Christmas moment to be able to unpack the story from all of its different vantage points. And what I thought we could do this morning is take a, a, a different vantage point, a, a physical one. I want you to imagine, if you will, a crash, a nativity scene. Some of you have those. Anybody have a, a crash in your home? A few of you? Yes. We have one. Actually, we... We have more than one. Actually, we have 19, I think, give or take. And it's always, it's, it's quite an enterprise to unpack them all, to find the right place to situate them all, and then to understand who all the characters are and where they're fitting. Some of them are in ponchos, some in dashikis or kimonos or Italian robes. Fascinating to see how that moment in God's sacred history, is visualized through the different cultural lenses of nations all around the world. So we pull them out of the boxes and we begin to unpack them and figure out who's who. There are the animals, of course. There's the the cattle and the sheep and the donkey and the enormous camel in the back. And when our kids were younger, we get kind of padded out with the animals that were from their own bedroom. So we'd have meerkats and warthogs and Siberian tigers and a lobster and, and anything else that would fit in there. Uh, next were the wise men because they're easily identifiable. They were the tall ones with the crowns and they're usually holding something in their hands. You could usually figure out the, uh, the shepherds because of the livestock at their feet or the shepherd's crook in their hand. Some of them were old, looking a little wizened. Some of them were young and looking burly. There was Mary, the, the woman in the scene, often looking very peaceful, completely unlike somebody who had just given birth. Um, there was Jesus, of course. Two kinds of Jesus in the nativity scenes. There were ones that were carved in a single piece. So you had the, the cradle with Jesus, all carved out of one piece of wood or, or cast out of one piece of ceramic. And then there was the two-piece deal, the one with the separate cradle and the Jesus. And Jesus, as it turned out, was interchangeable. So Kenyan Jesus could, could wind up in the Costa Rican manger and, and vice versa. The only time that didn't happen is when you had stuck Jesus. See, we had unstuck Jesus who could get mixed around and then stuck Jesus who was all one piece. And somewhere there is a sermon in the idea of unstuck Jesus, but that's not our sermon for today. The sermon revolves around the one character who has always been the hardest to figure out. And it's the one that we arrive at by process of elimination. When everybody else is in their place, the one that's left over is Joseph. I mean, what a telling illustration, not only for the physical diorama that we're setting up in our homes, but for the place that Joseph often occupies in the Christmas story. He is the forgotten man of Christmas. He's silent. I mean, surprisingly, if you read the accounts of the birth stories in the Bible, Joseph never speaks a word. He kind of appears 
like an extra on the scene of a television show. And his name appears there in the rolling credits at the end, but he has no spoken dialogue. He seems to be anything but central to the Christmas story. He's silent, but he's obedient. We know that about his character and his his example. And in some ways, it's kind of sad that he gets pushed off to the margins. Because I think it was Emerson who said that what you do speaks so loudly that I cannot hear what you say. And if that's true, then what Joseph does is a lesson all on its own. He is remarkably simple in his obedience. And it's simply remarkable what he is willing to do by hanging every action on an immediate word that comes from God. A word which on the surface seemed to be absolutely absurd. So there you have Joseph who is simply remarkable and remarkably simple. And when you look closely at his story, this forgotten man of Joseph, you see that this this Joseph models a number of things. And what I'd like to do this morning is just spend a few minutes and walk through what we know about the man behind the mythology. And much of what we have with Joseph is just mythology. Pictures of him on Hallmark cards, depictions of him leading a donkey in nativity pageants. But if you stop romanticizing the idea of Joseph and really look at him, I think you'll find not only will you have a great degree of sympathy for the man, but there is a lot to be learned from this man who says nothing but does everything right. What do we know about him? We know he was betrothed. That's the old English word for engaged. He was engaged to a young peasant girl named Mary, who turned out to be pregnant. The angel appeared at one point in the story and said, this is an act of God. And as a result, this northern Palestinian cabinet maker had to drop all of his tools, had to go to Bethlehem, had to take this young fiancé with him. And shortly thereafter, there's another dream, another message from God, where they're told that the next stage of their life is going to be lived not in the safety, security, or certainty of anything that they know, but in the flight of panicked refugees who have to leave for Egypt. If you look really closely at the life of Joseph, this man who says nothing, I think you could summarize it in a single word. If you want an adjective to be in front of the word Joseph, how about this one? Obedient. Obedient Joseph. There is an immediate obedience to the Word of God that is evident throughout his story and throughout his response. And if you look closely at Joseph, you learn that it's possible to obey God with a breathtaking, unquestioning immediacy. God spoke through an angel, and Joseph married his Mary. And in that regard, he acted with a level of obedience that kind of outpaces anybody else in the Christmas story. Now hear me out on this one. Who are the other characters in the story? Well, we hear first about Zechariah and Elizabeth. Remember, this is the family of Mary. This is the, the cousin. And Elizabeth is going to give birth to the man who would grow up to be John the Baptist. This is the cousin of Jesus. A messenger appears to Zechariah and says that they're going to have a child. Zechariah's response, how can this be? I'm an old man. And then he says something that you probably couldn't get away with in the 20th century. And my wife is well advanced in years. (laughs) 
And he was resistant. And, and if you read the account, you know that what happens next is that he's struck silent. Because God's word in his life is met with denial. And so until the baby is born, he does not, cannot speak. Let's unpack another character. Let's look at Mary. And I know this is, this is sacred ground, but look closely. The mother of Jesus, Luke chapter 1, verse 34. Here's the command given to her, and here's the response. Mary says to the angel, when the angel says that she will be God's vessel, for appearing in the world, Mary says, how can Now, interestingly, Joseph doesn't respond with any kind of recorded denial. Even Mary has her concerns. There is an immediacy to his response. All scripture says that upon hearing the word of the Lord, he took her to be his wife, and he didn't touch her until that holy thing that she carried was born into the world. In fact, his obedience outshines most of the other characters that we know of throughout Scripture. Think about some of the great ones. Think about Moses and this 80-year-old shepherd who's about to lead the grand exodus of God's people. What do you hear from him? Four consecutive excuses before he finally submits to the God high and lifted up in that compelling vision in the temple in Jerusalem. And what does he give? Excuse after excuse. I'm a man of unclean lips, poor speech. I come from a nation of unclean people with unpure lips. Think about Jeremiah. This young man called to be a prophet, he gives God two excuses. Neither one of them good. The first one, terrible. I'm too young. Terrible excuse. Second one is I'm not a great speaker. Since when has that been a prerequisite for God using anyone? And then there's Amos. This strange character, a keeper of sycamore trees and sheep, says, I just don't have the credentials to be a prophet. I'm a farmer and a sheep herder. Contrast that with Joseph, this man of whom we know so very little, who leaves a record of never having said a single thing. And yet when God spoke to him astonishingly difficult words, he responds immediately with obedience. I'm reminded of the words that come late in the New Testament, almost right at the very end, in the little letter of 1 John. It says, this will be the sign of salvation. By this we know that we have come to him. If we keep on habitually... Ch-. The first lesson from Joseph, this forgotten man of Christmas, is the lesson of obedience. But let's take it just a step further. Not only is obedience one of the signs, the signals of his life, but but it's an obedience that comes in the middle of confusion and pain. Sometimes it's easier to be obedient to God when it looks like God's will is lavishing upon you all the good things you could ever have hoped for. But what if life is chaotic? What if it's disruptive and painful? Think about the situation he was in. He was engaged to Mary. In Jewish culture, when a young girl was 12 or 13 years old, the family would make arrangements for a family for her would sign the first of a two-phase marriage contract. This was legally ratified and binding. Uh, But she wouldn't move out of the family home, not for a few years. The second phase of that agreement or of that marriage ceremony would happen. It was the transferal when the husband would go to his fiancée's home and take her to come and live in his home. So you could be engaged with the full contractual understanding of what that meant. 
to be married, step one, without actually being fully married, step two, and living together in your home. Sometime between step one and step two, Mary was found to be with child. Couldn't deny it. The evidence is right there, projecting from a distilled, swollen, (laughs) distended, that's the word, abdomen. I'm sure he probably wanted to deny it at first. Maybe it's a little bit of, I don't know, what do we call it, winter weight. Uh, Maybe she developed an appetite for figs and honey. but, But as day went by, it became less and less deniable. One of the questions history has raised, church history in particular, is is whether Joseph ever suspected Mary of sin, of infidelity. I kind of think, yeah, wouldn't you? Wouldn't that be the first place that church leaders, Chrysostom, Augustine, Justin Martyr, expected that, that, that Joseph would have entertained these thoughts and all the scandal associated with it? It was one of the later church fathers, Jerome, who came up with this idea that that Joseph somehow knew of Mary's holiness and that he hid in silence a mystery that he could not understand. In the end, we don't really know the answer to it. But we know what Joseph did. And what he did is rooted in the character of who he was. You read this famous phrase, great words, in Matthew 1, verse 9 where it says, at least in my translation, that Joseph was a just man. Man. That's an important word. It's it's actually a phrase that that can be read two different ways. That word, dikaios, just, means, first of all, he's a righteous man. It means that he lived under and obedience to and in reverence for the law of God. And according to the laws of God given through Moses... What Mary had done, or the situation that she was in, now classified her legally as a prostitute and one to be set aside. This is not the 1960s. There are no dalliances allowed. But, but the word dikaios, or just, has another meaning. It doesn't just mean just, committed to the law and the letter of the law, it also means to be wise and discreet and, and in some way to be magnanimous and good-hearted. And you see this in Joseph because what does he intend to do? He's not going to make a public spectacle out of his wife. Instead, he's going to go privately with a couple of other men and meet with their family and quietly try and set her aside to be able to preserve the dignity of everyone involved. He didn't have to do that. In fact, most men wouldn't have done that. He intended to deal with it in privacy, with prudence and discretion. And just as the plan was about to unfold, God, in a shattering way, comes into his life, and this message comes, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid. You can take Mary as your wife. That which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. What kind of dream is that? Uh, What could that possibly mean? You know, of course, that a carpenter's business, like any business in a small town, depends on the goodwill and the good relationships that you have with people. Everybody looking in on this scenario are going to assume scandal. Oh, there's Joseph. He's the one who's married to the knocked-up little girl. Talk about painful circumstances to move forward in accepting the will of God. There you have it with Joseph. Not just pain but also fear. Fear 
of consequence. I've seen men and women volunteer for ministry when, when their families rejected them for the choice that they made. I even worked with a man whose wife left him when he followed the call of God into ministry. We've seen people step into the baptistry to proclaim and celebrate their love for Jesus Christ, knowing full well that that declaration would put them on the other side of their own family knowing that we'd have to switch off the recording devices at the back and tell people not to post this online because their physical life was now in jeopardy. There are consequences for a life of obedience. And I think following through on the Word of God sometimes involves an incredible act of of spiritual and moral courage. And that's something that Joseph models. The first word of the angel when he speaks to Joseph, this often is the first word of angels, isn't it? It's not, hi, God says hello. What's the first word? Fear not. Don't be afraid. It's not don't be too proud to obey or don't be too angry or too hurt or too ashamed. Stop being afraid and obey. Why wouldn't you be afraid? I mean, Joseph is situated there right in Grand Central Station of God's arrival on earth, terrified by this idea of the virginal conception of Mary. God was about to become close, very, very close. And it creates a situation that scalded him with fear. And I'm sure drove him to a posture of humility. That's the understanding that the old Bible translators used to have when they talked about the awfulness of God. Not that he's terrible, but that he fills people with a kind of of righteous awe in the presence of God. You see that again and again, that response to God. If you read through the Gospels, very early on, the Gospel of Luke, around chapter 5, Jesus comes into the lives of a bunch of dock workers, some fishermen. They go out at night. They have this miraculous catch. Jesus is on the boat with them, and you would think the response would be gladness or joy. It's not. It's terror. It says Peter was overcome with fear. And he said to Jesus, you need to get away from me. I'm a sinful man. When God draws close, when he invades and disrupts our world with his presence, one of the results is fear. And so comes the word of the angel, don't be afraid. I'm sure that Joseph would have much rather go back to the carpenter shop and played with his tools than to step into his new role as stepfather to the Son of God. Imagine the courage it takes to move forward in obedience to that call. So not only does Joseph model an immediacy of obedience, obedience in the face of painful, confusing circumstances, it happens squarely in the face of fear, and it requires courage. The word of God came to Joseph how? In a dream. Yeah. Have you ever had a dream where you thought God was speaking to you? Are any of you having a dream right now? <laughs> yeah. The teachers of Jesus' day were divided about whether there was any value in dreams. Some of them said the dreams were worthless. Uh, 
Others would say that dreams were kind of a mild form of prophecy, but even then they said you always had to discriminate between false dreams and true ones. And I'm sure that Joseph in prayer must have been struggling with just that. There's no pastor or counselor to which he could go. He just has to decide, is this real or is this not? And when he decided and interpreted that it was real, he acted on it immediately. And in so doing, he's kind of like one of the Scripture's other great dreamers. In fact, it's his namesake. Do you remember another great dreamer from the Old Testament? Joseph, right, who's given this compelling dream. And in following the dream of God, he has to burn all bridges from his past. The dream comes to him incarcerated in a cell in Egypt. In obedient to God's will and following that dream, the trajectory of his life is completely altered. From that remarkable moment, Joseph, this forgotten man of Christmas, stakes everything on a word that comes from God. And that obedience, it, uh, boy, not only is it breathtaking, it's consequential. It has its consequences. There was a U.S. president, uh, well, a little while ago. They called him the Teflon president. You remember who that was? Teflon president? Ronald Reagan. Somebody remembers. Yeah. Hollywood's actress come man of power. They called him the Teflon president. It was a pejorative word given to him by a frustrated press corps because nothing stuck to him. It didn't matter what he'd said by mistake or done by mistake. The public just loved him and they stuck by him. It seemed to have no consequences. Joseph was not a Teflon father. The consequences of his choices, of his obediences, stuck. It's a good, a good lesson, a good reminder. Obedience always has consequences. Some of them immediate, some of them are lifelong. Let's look at Joseph. Verse 24, verse 25 shows him in action. It says, Joseph did as the angel of the Lord commanded. He took Mary to be his wife. That is, he went to the parents' house, took her with him into his own home. It says he didn't know her. You know what that word means? Brought forth her firstborn son, called his name Jesus. You have an immediate consequence. His whole life is disrupted. Suddenly, he's a husband. He's a dad in this family that is encircled with the most malicious gossip and rumor. Because think about the rest of the story. No sooner had he married Mary than he has to drop everything, go to Bethlehem in obedience to a census, which not coincidentally means that Jesus is going to be born in the very place where the prophet said he would be born. And then they had to fly by night into Egypt. And the story, as familiar as it is, lacks teeth to it because it's been so cleaned up both in Hallmark cards and Sunday school pageants that we just don't experience the visceral weight of it. So maybe if we can, let's try and imagine it in in contemporary terms. I, I want you to think about your adult son or your adult grandson or yourself here. Suppose there's a young man engaged to a woman. Suddenly she's found to be pregnant. At some point in the process, he has a dream saying, stick with her. And after he's starting to get through this, that staggered feeling of hearing from God, he knows what's next. He has to go to his parents. Mom, 
Dad, you know my fiance. She's pregnant. Wasn't me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Hard as that is, the next conversation is with her parents. Sir, ma'am, your daughter. Well, you can see, pregnant wasn't me. <laughs> we don't know how it happened, honestly. And then together they have to face all of the gossip that would come from the circumstances. And just as they're starting to process that and settle into a life together, as, as hard as the life is, some bureaucrat and source, a new taxation scheme for the country, but it's going to involve a bit of population migration. You're going to have to go back to your hometown, and we're going to re-enroll you on this new tax system. So he, he climbs into his old car, and they drive all the way across the country to the little town where he was born. Everything's booked out, motels, hotels, nothing. The only place they could find was an unheated garage. And there in the, in the frigid cold of a Canadian winter, on the greasy floor of an unheated garage, Mary gives birth to her son, and they wrap him in some of the shop towels, and they place him on the workbench. And just when that young man is starting to wonder what else could possibly go wrong, there's a knock at the garage door, and they look outside to see a group of homeless men. Thinking they'd just come looking for change, he's not sure what to do. But he opens the door, it's cold outside, and, and they come in, and no sooner do they arrive than shabbily clothed as they are, they get down on their knees in front of the workbench and start to pray in thanksgiving. Glory to God, they say. As that young man's eyes grow just a little bit wider, it's not long after that 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 a series of stretched limousines pull up. Out get representatives from the United Nations carrying suitcases full of Krugerrands, there to bear tribute. And they're just getting through the impact of that when they hear on the news that the premier of the province has just mobilized the reserve army with the most hideous and horrific of all possible degree, decrees that all of the children born that night are about to be put to death. And suddenly these, these people already on the move find themselves refugees, heeding a voice that came from God saying, you got to get out now, go to South America. And with no family, no friends, no contacts, no anything, they flee. Can you imagine what it's like to start life all over again in a new land with nothing? Some of you can. Christmas story is a refugee story. It's also the story of a remarkable obedience. The obedience of Joseph had its consequences. And, and yes, there is a pure, satisfying joy that comes in living in the center of God's will and purpose, but there are a lifetime of consequences. That's really relaxing. (laughs) 
When I was 19 years old, I was a university residence in Waterloo on a, I want to say a December, early December night, when I first heard the word of the Lord with clarity, uh, and the word pastor appeared, a disruptive word for somebody who was enrolled in the faculty of engineering. Uh, for 32 years, I've tried to figure out what that word has meant. And for 32 years, my family and I have been living with the consequences, many joyful, some painful. You may have decided recently to step out in a gesture of faith and obedience because you've heard God in a way that was undeniable. And if that's not happened, I, I hope and pray that that's one of the things God has in store for you as we step into the roaring 20s again. But maybe you've already stepped out and after the first wave of exhilaration begins to fade, you're dealing with the fallout and you're wondering, did I make a mistake? Can I give you a word this morning? Don't give up. Don't turn back. You're not crazy. Faith has its consequences. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways submit to Him, and He will make your path straight. I want to give you one final word about Joseph before we pack up the nativity scene for this year. One of Christmas reminds us of the influence that obedience has. When you see someone who lives that life of absolute immediate obedience and is willing to do so despite the painful circumstances, mustering up the profound courage it takes to obey, willing to live with the consequences, there's something deeply inspiring and influential about that example. And it must have been so for Jesus. We saw this in his earthly father. Turns out some of those sayings about fatherhood are true after all. That the twig does grow in the direction that it's bent. That the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. And when Jesus starts preaching in the world, when he emerges from the shadows as the adult uh, prophet, preacher, rabbi, son of God, when he addresses God in prayer and before the people, he doesn't call him emperor. He doesn't call him an autocrat or a dictator or a camel driver. He calls him Father, Abba, an Aramaic word for Papa or Daddy, a word that belongs in the context of, of hearth and home. And in all of Jewish literature, nobody had ever called God that before. It starts with Jesus, Abba, Father, Heavenly Father. Why? It's been said of Martin Luther, the great reformer, that his relationship with his own father was so terrible that through his whole life he was unable to pray to God as father. Not so with Jesus. Why? Because of Joseph. 
And he was able to take that remarkable, influential model of obedience and elevate it and lift it to such a level that now when we turn to God and raise our eyes heavenward, it's often with these words on our lips, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Heavenly Father. And our Lord Jesus, who saw that remarkably simple obedience in his earthly father, must have learned obedience in the same way. Even obedience that took him to a cross. I think that's enough for today. Until you and find Joseph and get him out of the back and bring him forward. Let me pray for you. Our Heavenly Father, our gracious Abba, how we praise you for the witness and the testimony of those whose lives have so revolved around you that they're willing to obey despite the cost, They're willing to obey in the face of consequence. Lord, they're willing to obey, obey, though it requires mustering up of great courage. From their example too, we, we would draw inspiration. And for each person here, the courage to take the next step in following You. Speak in a way that we can hear with clarity and speak with persistence. Humble us to hear and then raise us up to follow. God, as we step into a new year, a new decade in our lives, we anticipate great things, all for the glory of the One whose name we are privileged to bear. For in Jesus' name we pray.